0: Log
1: Talk Radio. Africa Africa is the center of the world, latitude zero,
2: longitude zero. Planned by the Creator. Sazanthropus was the first man found on the Earth so vast, so great, the African great the color of life
3: universal harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human beings, human love
2: on a spiritual tip so vast to the other, so great the African embrace,
3: live beyond, love beyond,
2: your skin to where you
0: belong.
4: We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. our mother gave birth to everyone on earth, so we echo her call and always walk tall. Because we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. That everyone can wear, That everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on.
5: We welcome you to Africa on the move. As your host, Brother Africa, it's always an honor and privilege to come to your homes this evening where we can speak to the powerless and the powerful. Today on the fifth day of September 2021, our theme tonight is a continuation of part three. Dealing with Deception, Control, and Power. We will welcome you to join us by calling in at 323-679-0841. And our agenda tonight entails what's going on in your world the community, followed by a discussion on the theme from various articles and documentaries that reflect our concept tonight. We'd like to hear your views and your perspectives as well, again, by joining us. But like always, I'm your host, Brother Africa, and we in the seat, we're going to take the heat as we define it, we're going to stand behind it. And like I said earlier, as always, the way we started our party, here to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. Right now, we have Brother Haki, and we're going to bring Brother Haki in, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Haki.
6: Brother Africa, good to be here. My name is Haki Mishoki, current with African Awareness, and of course, my thing is institution building. But before I even get to the question of institution building, you know, in the context of North America, one of the things I got to say, Brother Africa, I'm somewhat uh, disappointed in terms of the transformation that's been occurring and uh, Australia, South Africa, uh, given the uh, kind of struggles that are taking place, I was a bit more optimistic that they would follow the line of um, um, Mandela and proceed to change the paradigm the country was facing and, and then changing that paradigm, create a new way in terms of moving forward. But that hasn't been the case. In any event, I, I think there's some history. I think it's important that people understand in terms of what's happening in, in South Africa. Now, check this out, Brother Africa. Now, transformation of Africa's economies are complicated by opposing philosophies espousing the best avenue to develop an economy. On the one hand, transformation of African economies is best achieved by nationalizing the economy, making economic decisions a distinct part of institutional mandates, thereby elevating the realization of economic power. Contravailing economic views, maintain macroeconomic development, or the growth of corporate earnings should take precedent over the distribution of wealth. Under this scenario, foreign investments hold the key to economic growth. This view espouses the idea, without economic growth, redistribution of wealth is not possible. This philosophy at its core is fallacious and often used to obscure the corruption and manipulation associated with macroeconomic financing. Now, on the side note, Brother Africa, if I'm allowed to transgress, this is, it is important to point out Western investments and the role they play in introducing technology and farming practices that adversely impact the ecosystem in South Africa and Africa generally. Industrial agriculture is implicated in fostering food, poor nutritional value, while driving up the cost of food. While 42% of the population live on $5 a day, the lack of access to food and the poor nutritional value of the food impairs the immune system of many South Africans, making many South Africans vulnerable to a myriad of infections. For the multinational corporation, is business as usual now in the case of south africa all the variables affiliated with profitable trade exist. south africa has diversified and productive and advanced economy abundant natural resources a transparent legal system and a relative political stability despite these attributes of south africa the world banks right ranks or rates south africa 84 out of 190 economies in the world to invest in according to the world bank high crime rates social unrest strikes and demonstrations High levels of corruption, electrical power grid issues, and possible structural reform imposing increased taxes on foreign, foreign corporations are some of the reasons why. Based upon this criteria, why would anyone invest in the U.S.? Obviously, with respect to investments in South Africa, a hidden motive is at play, whereby the motives of foreign capital seek not just to maximize profits by leaving South Africa a risky investment, but perhaps to inhibit South Africa's economic growth. There is no question, obstacles are erected, essentially to the real South Africa's economic growth. Policies of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank exist specifically to plunder the resources of Africa, and South Africa is no exception. However, I would be remiss by not pointing out the misdeeds of South African politicians who enhance their wealth at the expense of the people by utilizing former economic colonial structures erected by their predecessors. By refusing to eradicate or at the very least to reform these institutions, political heads of the government in South Africa inadvertently gave legitimacy to structures designed specifically to maximize profits for the minority while inflicting hardship on the majority. A point highly debated during the Freedom Charter of 19, the ruling party, the ANC, chose to proceed with politics that elevated foreign investments as a panacea. Of course, this, this position is consistent with a class analysis, but what it did not take into consideration was a level of historical deprivation among the population and a lack of access to education. Given this reality, the basic needs of the people should have been incorporated in political strategy where the wealth of the country would be used to address the people's needs. Implicit in this idea is a notion that wealth that the wealthy would have access to less wealth and any foreign investments would be targeted toward increases in social and community service spending. As it currently stands, a majority of foreign investments in South Africa goes to finance, insurance, real estate, and the manufacturing sectors. While these investments enrich the group of brothers and others' entrenched interest, interests, interest, 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 the human capital needed to ensure a viable nation remains neglected. Any notion that economic growth could lead to radical distribution of wealth is clearly debunked. Instead, South Africa did experience growth, but the increase in growth pertained to the level of graft and corruption. Now, starting with President Dambo and Becky in the late 90s, corruption gained precedent. Involved in questionable weapon sales, Mbeki would often utilize scapegoating to conceal his duplicity. Labeling Nigerians as drug dealers, he was able to divert attention from his corruption. Resolved by Jacob Zuma for corruption, a pre a pro quo was established. Free to engage in state capture or organized corruption among political class, Zuma was much more flamboyant. Providing security updates for his, for his estate, these security measures included a swimming pool, In an amphitheater for 246 million rand, or $23 million. The police minister decided to investigate this unusual expenditure, stated, quote, the pool is a fire prevention measure, end quote. I can only marvel at this investigator's creativity and use of language to defend the indefensible. The last time I heard anything compelling me to blurt out what the hell, former President Yaya Jama informed the people of the Gambia, quote, I can cure AIDS on Thursday, end quote. Zuma's antics did not end despite the obvious. He continued to facilitate state capture by appointing an obvious political hack to embrace corruption. Malusi Gega, nicknamed the four-day special, was appointed finance minister. His appointment presumably was what the Gents article referred to as the final step in the consolidation of corruption among political elites. So when Beleke Mbeke, former NAMC chair, decries a popular legacy of corruption, she deflects from the corruption that currently exists that ever should affect South Africans today, which is facilitated by a party that said it is committed to change. Now, creativeness aside, the very real impact of corruption negatively affects everyone, specifically the poor. International finance institutions do not have the best interest in alleviating poverty in South Africa or anywhere else in the world for that matter. The road to salvation for South Africa lies in what Robert Zabukwe advocated decades ago. Quote, let me place with you, lovers of my Africa, to pair with you into the world the vision of a new Africa, end quote. Such a vision will never materialize until pan-Africanism is achieved and the establishment of a paradigm that understands freedom should transcend economic class, and any system that proclaims class superior should infer the worst of repudiation. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa.
5: Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're going to Brother Moses. We bring in Brother Moses. Good evening to you, and welcome to Africa on the Moon.
7: Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao tongue, is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts, Brother Africa, I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, I'd like to say Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. Uh, I think women hold up half the sky. And so... You know the the struggle is to unite the many to defeat the lives of the few. Thank you, and have uh, look forward to the rest of the evening. Thank you.
5: Thank you, brother Moses, and to our listening audience. You're listening to Africa on the move. They're in the seat and they're going to take their heat as they define it. They're going to stand behind it. What we're going to do right now, we're going to a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we're going to get started on. The segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. And we'd like to invite you to join us by dialing in at 1-323-679-0841. This is the voice of Africa on the move, Brother Africa. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere.
8: No mind your nationality You have got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland
1: You're an African
8: don't care where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African, No mind your nationality, I've you got the identity of an African, cause if you come from Trinidad, and if you come
5: We're going to move, and we're going to start off right now with our segment of what's going on in your world and the community, and we'd like for you to join in again by dialing 323-679-0841. You know, there are so many things going on uh, in this world right now, so we're going to bring in our brother high Key, and we're going to ask him, brother high Key, kick the ballistics. What's going on in your world and the community? The so is your brother Haki.
6: Well, brother Africa, I I got to tell you, you know, uh, we we're quite aware of the role propaganda plays in terms of forming confusion in the minds of many many people, and we understand that people in positions of power, was intentionally, they conscientiously create propaganda with the sole purpose in mind as to deceive people. In fact, it's very, very successful. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, it disarms people so people don't have an adequate understanding in terms of, you know, uh, kind of changes that have taken place and the kind of uh, repercussions of those changes. Uh, when we talk about the role in terms of telecommunications companies in terms of their ability to prop up a certain message, particularly prop up a conservative message at the expense of all other messages, and clearly the we we, we talk about the, the essence of, of which is we're at war, and so it's coming upon the people to understand you know that being in war that information is extremely important in terms of being able to waste at war because art without adequate information. yes it's very difficult to become very problematic in terms of raising war and certainly one of the things that I, I find extremely problematic brother Africa is in the a lot of the environmental groups in terms of their propensity in terms of to play ball with corporate America at expense of, of at expense of humanity. And so I, I, I wrote this, and I think it uh, sort of informs as to, you know, the, the real motivation behind environmental groups in terms of some of the shenanigans that take place in terms of their willingness to be part of the corporate agenda. So check this out, Brother Africa. Now, this information used by governments to deceive and distract the population from God situations pertaining to the situation to the planet and on life has effectively infiltrated the thinking of countless millions and the organizations committed to disarming propaganda. Implicit in the thinking of the multitude is the notion industrial capitalism will save all and the inevitability of the corporate state a given. This kind of thinking has pernicious implications for, indiv- for individuals who are problematic for environmental groups who embrace these receptions, act on them, and disseminate information designed to deceive the public. Often this embrace of the corporate agenda by environmental organizations is preceded by corporate funding providing huge enough lodges where corporate agenda holds sway. Organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund, World Wildlife Fund, Greenpeace, and the Sierra Club all at some point have been beneficiaries of corporate lodges. Consequently, the advocacy emanating from these groups have been less than stellar. Distortions and outright lies that corporations have been allowed to stand will with little or no pushback for environmental groups. One of the biggest exceptions peddled by corporations is the blurring of energy versus electricity. Now, according to Leah Keith, an environmentalist, claims of renewable energy normally applies to electricity, not the fossil fuels used to manufacture electricity. So when TDA has promised New York will implement 100% renewable energy by 2026, they are not advocating reduction in oil, gas extraction, or industrial process used to extract them. They are actually talking about increases in electricity, which currently consists of about twenty percent of all energy use. What they attempt to conceal is those gases would contribute to global warming, carbon methane, etc. production schedules will not decrease because the reduction in greenhouse gases would mean a reduction in productivity or profits. One could argue the invisible hand of capitalism does not want the people to understand profits are more important than life or the planet. Unfortunately, this propensity to elevate money over life does resonate among some segments of society. In the case of Roberto Singolani, Italy's ecological transition minister, he is adamant the real problem with global warming is environmental extremists, not the industrial processes that created greenhouse gases. Singolani's invective toward environmentalists is by no means an individualist impulse, but the culmination of capitalist programming that relegates materialism above all other concerns. In Lewis Mumford's Mega Machine Analysis: the theme of human serving human, of human serving machines rather than machines serving humans, is a consistent tenet of society. The machine, in this case, corporations' interests, supersede all other interests, human interests included. Corporate domination de- demands subservience among the population, and that subservience can best be obtained by technological innovation, which overwhelms human senses whereby a sense of politics is established among the people. Once people are relegated. Unimportant, social relations among people that make up social systems are destroyed, leaving corporations free to organize the world's resources in a manner most lucrative for corporations. Destruction of planet, of life, becomes inconsequential because economic growth dip, uh, takes precedent over all other concerns. A disenfranchised social system ensures beneficiaries of the corporate agenda enjoy short-term benefits of growth, unaware or unconcerned about impending economic doom. It must be pointed out technology will not solve global warming scientists state carrying global temperatures is about 1.2 degrees celsius or 34.16 degrees fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels according to most scientists global temperature rise of 1.5 degrees celsius or 34.7 degrees fahrenheit will render the earth uninhabitable impact of global warming currently is evident according to an intergovernmental panel on climate change eighty seven percent of wetlands vital to prevention of floods have been destroyed. Droughts are commonplace with western states in the u s experience water difficulty as the Colorado River dries up. over seven states, forty million people depend on the distressed river for water. Both the Arctic and Greenland ice sheets are melting, and when they are gone will result in seven, seven seven meter sea level rise and showing an evacuation of coastal towns throughout the planet. in addition, absence of the ice sheet will not only ensure that the exponential increase of temperatures on the planet, but also ocean currents affect the nation's climates. This phenomenon currently exists, but will increase considerably when the ice shelves are totally melted. Putting global warming into context, I should point out the total elimination of fossil fuels may, not, may be unrealistic. Leah Keith rightly points out the density level of energy sources vary where normally the higher the density, the more energy they can be extracted. For example, she conveyed the differences in energy output by comparing lithium batteries to diesel fuel, lithium batteries, according to Ms. Keith, provides one joule of energy, while diesel fuel provides 46 joules of energy. The commercial implications are clear. The solution to global warming is to end large-scale mining projects, minimizing extraction and limiting industrial farming that destroy wetlands and contribute to deforestation. What the planet does not need is policy that contributes to global warming. For example, the U.S. Congress recently passed the Growing Climate Solution Act which seeks to merely inform farmers about carbon capture technologies and other technologies to combat carbon emissions. The only problem with carbon, carbon capture is twofold. One, it does not address the carbon that currently exists in the atmosphere. And secondly, carbon capture, when exposed to pressures uh, below 2,600 feet below the earth, are susceptible to explosion or resulting tremors. What we need is an enlightenment exhibited by essential rebellion and the an end to capitalism and its indifference to life. Until we do that, brother, Africa, we're all simply in peril. So we got much work to do in terms of changing this paradigm if we are to save humanity and to save the planet.
5: Hey, nothing to it, to it brother Haki, but just to get to it. So that's what we're start working on. Let's do that. We thank you. Next, what's going on in your world and the community, brother Moses? Kick the, some ballistics to our people.
7: Yeah, this has been a very interesting week, um, um, um they tell me Andrea and not Luther King III caught voting rights and abolishing the filibuster, uh, in terms of the march that they had, um, um, last Saturday. Um, I think that, um, I've had personal struggles this week, um, uh, where i I feel like my feelings are being uh, overlooked, and I'm trying to make an issue out of things, but I don't know if that's another i guess that's this is another time or the place um um I, this is, this has been, this has been a, i don't know i'm i'm I, I don't have anything to say right now I'm sorry thank you.
5: No problem, Brother Moses. Sometimes it's like that. We got our Sister Eleanor on the phone. We're going to bring her in. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa to Move. And what's going on in your world, in the community? Sister Eleanor.
3: Oh, good evening, everyone. And uh, to all the analysts and all our listeners, uh, thank you for allowing me to participate and tuning in. It's been uh, a, a, an extraordinary week. Um, I just wanted to comment on Brother Hakeem and the issue of global warming is the most uh, serious issue we're facing at hand, and it is going to require a complete restructuring of the economy. And to take away the incentives for drilling for fossil fuel, uh, uh, Exxon and the big big oil companies were just given permission to drill in – Guiana. Now, I was concerned that China was building 20 coal plants, but here the United States is going to uh, drill for oil. We have to stop using fossil fuels altogether. And there's a lot of science out here that uh, that has proven to be effective in reducing energy costs and producing uh, quality uh, industry-level uh, uh, energy sources, such as solar energy, such as windmills, and uh, other things. So we can use wind, we can use solar, geothermal. There are so many alternatives. And some of that requires that we deal with our own micro environment. Uh, what we saw happen in Louisiana and come straight up the East Coast is uh, a result of global warming. I don't think the sewers uh, failed so much in New York City. As the uh, environment, had. we don't get uh, normally uh, tornadoes on the East Coast. We don't have these type of heavy rains that we saw in this past week. This is a result of global warming. Consequently, people lost their lives. Um, We need to pay attention to just uh, how we manage litter, making sure that we don't – I see people often dropping things down the uh, uh, sewer uh, on the sidewalk, saying, oh, it's just going to go to the river. Well, that's exactly where it's going. And moreover, if it doesn't go there, it's going to clog the sewer system. And if there is a great rain, it's going to back up in our communities. So we need to do a great deal of community education. But most importantly, we need to see some legislative changes that will put an economic incentive uh, for these capitalists to Want to use alternative energy? To think of alternatives to fossil fuel, and 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 uh, we also need to make strong penalties where if they continue to use it and there's no cutting down or no ma- uh, making any attempt to address the issue, that they are fined, that they pay heavy fines for these things. We saw what happened with Jeff Bezos with the union. He got big fines for what he did, but it doesn't matter because it wasn't big enough. It's just the cost of doing business. So the courts identified that he broke labor laws all over the place. Amazon did, but it didn't matter in the long run because the 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 few million dollars that he had to pay uh, in legal fees and in fines were just a part of doing business. It was just a part of Amazon's doing business. So we need to restructure. And as Brother Hakim said, we need to uh, consider another economic structure. At least taking out the economic incentives uh, out of fossil fuel and about and from people who interfere with labor's right to organize. We have the least. Uh, union members ever, I think, in American history at this time. And I don't think it's worker apathy. I think it's a a majority of things. I think the bosses, the petty bosses, can buy off people on on the line and that sort of thing. But in the long run, it holds back the masses. So um, uh, the other issue was... uh, issue in Afghanistan. And I'm very proud of the women and children of Afghanistan. The women in Afghanistan uh, demonstrated uh, uh, two days in a row. And uh, they endured being tear gassed and beaten uh, by the Taliban trying to stand up for their rights. And I think they're doing a great job. You can't lay low now They got involved the very week the Taliban took over. And uh, um, I understand there's one state in Afghanistan that has not surrendered and continued to fight. So uh, I gotta say, uh, I stand in solidarity with the people of Afghanistan and I hope that they will develop a sound working government soon. Now, the Taliban says that they establish a government. Women cannot hold high positions of authority. And uh, we saw this week where the Taliban was busy eliminating public art. Uh, they they just literally painted over public art. And they were up to their old tricks from the 1990s where they destroyed uh, – it's just public contemporary art now. In '96, they destroyed, uh, they destroyed, ancient ruins and and things that were tens of thousands of years old, Buddhist statues and these things. They blew them up. So we want to urge the Taliban to get some help in developing. Uh, uh, skills to do cross-communication with the people of Afghanistan, the Afghanistan government, and I hope that they would have uh, uh, some commitment to allowing people to speak freely without fear for their lives or bodily harm. And uh, that's about it, and I just say the Cuban people are struggling, but they're moving forward. So uh, long live the Cuban Revolution, and uh, we keep on struggling. And I don't know what's happening in the U.S. Congress that we can't get two bills passed to protect the rights of voters in this country.
9: I don't know where
3: our democratic government is standing that we would allow this this.
1: Ridiculous
3: voter suppression in D.C. Where voting works, where there are no problems. One of the councilwoman councilwomen had brought up uh, something she called that's called rank choice voting. My my feelings are strongly, brother Africa, and fellow analysts. If it's not broke, don't fix it. In the District of Columbia, as in many other cities, such as Philadelphia, and New York, you simply walk into the voting poll, you give them your name and address, they have you identify yourself uh, in the large voter registration book, you sign your name there, and you're off to vote. Uh, We don't need to change that. We have no voter fraud in this country. There was apparently an audit in 2014, and of the whole nations, there were 34 cases that could have been questionable, 34 instances, not 34 polling sites, not 34 districts, but 34 instances where individual voters, it was questionable uh, whether or not they should have voted at that time. I'd say... uh, congratulations to the American voters register to vote and keep it up and urge Congress to pass the John Lewis voters rights bill and the second bill which I'm sorry I don't know the full name of but it's regularity in voting or something but we need to have both pieces of legislation passed on the hill so we can fight back in 18 states across the country what this alexis is doing so i just want to say thank you to everyone and uh i'm so happy to be here it's been uh challenging this week in terms of some health issues but the fight goes on and uh together with uh family and friends and uh
5: I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Listening audience, this is Africa on the This is Brother Africa. And we're discussing what's going on in your world and the community. And we will continue the discussion when we come back from our Rubbish Culture Break. valor That's right. we got to fight against apartheid. We're not just talking about in South Africa. We talk about wherever you find African people who are dispossessed, who don't control their land base and their resources and their labor. All of it, in essence, are the same. So right now, we're walking back to Africa on the move. We're in the seat. We take the heat. We're going to try to inspire you and elevate you to a higher level activity towards fighting for the liberation for Mother Africa, her people, and a better humanity for all man and womankind. So welcome back to the part three. The theme tonight the is deception, control, and power. We'll be discussing this theme very shortly, but at this point in time, we'd like to continue our discussion on what's going on in your world and the community. Brother Haki, come and talk to me, Brother Haki. I want to raise a question with you, Brother Haki. That was a documentary we actually have panelists and analysts to take a look at from YouTube. And we we're going to say uh, the name of the documentary is Pop Avenue, Money, Power, and the American Dream. That's an interesting um, documentary. And one of the things what it does is it really just shows you there are a certain locations where the elite among the elite lives. And uh and that's their base, that's our community. And when I was looking at the documentary, Brother Haki, I was just wondering that um here they can display with the power for the elite lives and they seem to be, um, living in a state of peace. There's no kind of opposition. They have you know, no opposition in terms of them dealing with the consequences of the damaging, the lies, the destruction the oppression that they are inflicting on people around the world, why they change to live, you know, in a, in, in a sense of enormouscy. My question to you and the rest of the panelists, Brother Hockey, is what can we do to make the, the, these oppressors realize that there will be no place on earth where they can live in peace until the people themselves have peace and justice? What do you think about the role of Park Avenue and it plays for a um, displaying and organizing and carrying out uh, different forms of oppression against people in the world. Your take, Brother Haki?
6: Well, you know you know you know, um seven forty Park Avenue is a very interesting place. You know, uh this particular building has more billionaires than any building, you know, in the country. And it's very interesting. But you know, there is sporadic outcries in terms of the kind of fundamental injustices inflicted by these billionaires. Uh, there, from time to time, you have people who come out, uh, you know, to picket those buildings. But unfortunately, the relative small number of people. So of course, the question is, how do we enlarge? How do we get more people to involve themselves in terms of, you know, uh, you know, uh, voicing their outrage in terms of the kind of systematic injustices uh, formed by these billionaires? That's going to take a lot of work, brother. Africa it's, like I said before, the role of propaganda is, is a very, uh, very intricate one. Uh, its the ability in terms of deceiving people. Uh, its ability to foment fear in people is very, very real, and so when you ask people to stand up, you, you, you I mean you're I mean you're 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 up against uh, a situation where, you know um, people are inculcated with 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 all kinds of fears, all kinds of suspicions, all kinds of doubts, and so in that extent, propaganda is very very effective. So against that backdrop, uh, how do you overcome all of that? Is is, is becomes a very a very intricate question. Of course, organization plays a part in terms of getting people to realize the power that they have. But of course, in terms of organizing folks, you got to first and foremost you got to attract people. You got to get people to engage in these kind of discussions in order to move things forward. So it's a very very long process. Uh, but but to to be more specific, I just want to make sure I pointed out that there are sporadic uh, uh, sporadic um, um, demonstrations of people actually coming out. But one of the things that's interesting about Africa, when you, when you talk about 740 Park Avenue, and, and, and keep in mind, people should understand, that we only talk about only 31 units, and these people have very, very, extremely large apartments. I mean, these apartments, uh, a lot of them are the equivalent, you know, of, of a mansion. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so the people who live in these 31 units are largely people who represent the creme of the creme, you know, in the economic world here in America. And we talk about the hedge fund, you know, a private equity firm, uh, uh, directors and, and, and uh, presidents and owners, so clearly you know the kind of wealth that these people hold. I mean, is tremendous. Is tremendous. Uh, is tremendous. Uh, but I, one other thing, brother, I, I want to say real quickly. You know, I think it's important that people get when we talk about 740 Park Avenue, is that when you walk down between the between the 60s and the 80s, whether you, uh, on the East Side, these are some of the most wealthiest people in the world. When you get to like a 96th Street, then you begin to see the poverty. When you get up to 110th Street, is you have immense poverty. So clearly, uh, the kind of uh, the kind of wealth is on display. So all the problems that are familiar with most of New York is not an issue as it pertains to these people. When you come out clean streets, uh, making sure the city cleans up the streets, in term, uh, that's not an issue for these people. That's that's done. When it comes to uh, collection of trash, it's not an issue. It's done. So all of these amenities that people take for granted are, 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 are given when it comes to the wealthy these amenities are not provided for people who are poor in New York, and the communities reflect that reality. But the bottom line, Brother Africa, I think that when, when you talk about terms of engaging people, you know, to get them to, uh, to, to take a stand in terms of actually confronting these people, getting them to understand the, the, the immense concern that people have with the kind of um, injustice in the society, uh, in order to do that, we're going to have to have a real, I mean, have to have a mass organization. I mean, we really have to have a mass organization we got to be able not only to confront these people in terms of where they live, but actually be able to confront them uh, in the Hamptons, at their mansions, or be able to confront them at the, at the workplace. But it's going to take massive organization in terms of doing that. And uh, with that massive organization comes, to, I mean, I a mean, tremendous amount of organization in terms of pulling it off. Because we got to understand, first and foremost, that when you talk about confronting these wealthy people, uh, they, in fact, control the, 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 the law enforcement apparatus in this country. And so when you come at them, and effectively what you're doing, you know you're going to you're going to you're going to, uh, um, you're, going to incre- you're going to increase you're uh, going to increase the amount of resistance uh, uh, among the law enforcement, and so therefore they're much more in a position because they because they are beholden to the wealthy, they're much more in a position to to fiercely defend the interests of the people who are very very powerful and rich. So that's why the organization in, 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 the, in the community organizing is so important because you're not just you're not just confronting the wealthy, but you're confronting also all of those all of those uh, uh, organizations all those institutions that back up the wealthy so you have to have that very strong organization you have to have a community organization you have to have uh, a clear understanding in terms of what you're doing because the bottom line is that when you take on these people, the reality is that you know there's a real likelihood that there can be some re- kind of repercussions when you do that We have to be prepared for that, whether we're talking about losing your job or whether you're talking about being visited by the FBI or, or whatever, you've got to be prepared for that. So we're going to take mass organization and tremendous understanding in terms of the situation we're up against and understanding that the situation we, uh, we're confronted with is dire. So if we don't do things, I mean, in a very striking fashion, the reality is that we simply won't be heard. So we need that mass organization in terms of empowering people to be bold enough to take those kind, take those kind of positions uh, that are needed in terms of confronting these people who are very, very powerful.
5: Okay, Sister Eleanor and Brother Moses, as we look at that documentary, they talk about a club that undermined this whole illusion of inclusion in terms of voting. They talk about this party that no one else really talks about is what they call the Donor Party. The Donor Party composed of about 200,000 people who basically select the politicians and determine who win and get these elections who become president and get many of these so-called um, official governmental jobs in regards to which party they belong to. What do you say about this this issue of how should we deal with this donor party? How do we deal with this donor party in relationship and negating the reality that um, it became very clear when you watch this documentary that they vote means very little? I'll start with you, Brother Moses. Your take on the impact of the donor party, and its contradiction against the whole concept of so-called voting participation. While well, okay, I'm for Brother Moses, let's go to... i Okay, go ahead, Brother Moses. Yeah, um, I
1: think,
7: you know, the Donor Party represents a, a certain class of people, uh, a, a certain strata of uh, an echelon of a class of people. Who have money, um, billions, and um, and they, you use their money to to uh, carry out their interests, obviously, and um, you know we, as the working class, to some point decide how they got their money and whether whether this, this is a just situation or not, and and whether we should be uh, appropriating some of that money for the good of the, of the overall masses. And um, higher taxes is one way, uh, uh, but it comes down to the law and the the government, the state. Somehow you have to take control of the state in order to get these laws passed, which which prevent this kind of uh, inequity. Um, And, you know, the point is not to understand the world. The point is to change the world, according to Marx. And so, you know, we don't want to just become aware of the problem, but we want to figure out a solution to the problem. And that's where we need a political party and, a, and conscious people to take action. Thank you. I'll leave it right there.
5: Thank you, Brother Moses. Yes. This is Illinois. Your response. How do we deal with this issue of this donor party versus the so-called illusion of the power to vote?
3: Well, on this Labor Day weekend, this is a fantastic topic. I have to take us back to um 1887. In 1887, one state, a relatively new state, Oregon, recognized Labor Day. By 1894, 7 days, 7 years later, Uh, There have been so much worker activity and workers struggle to organize until the country recognized Labor Day. And I look at what's happening and I I think this donor party, they don't select the candidates, but they definitely have an influence over the candidates. And that is they finance campaigns. The people should select the candidates. Like uh, we saw that, in, uh, we saw that in uh, Colorado, we saw that there was a major movement uh, to, that just gave farm workers protection, some protection, their health and safety, and that didn't happen because of the big industrial farms, that happened because of the workers being organized. We see that in uh which sure which the um uh, what is it called? How do we pronounce it? Uh in uh, Massachusetts the largest nurses strike in history is standing up uh right now and it's up to and they're having an impact and it's in uh um, uh, uh, what is the county called Worcester County? I I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I I think it's W O R C H E S T E R County. Well, that strikes going on. So we need to stand in solidarity with them. We saw what just happened in Texas with essential workers. Those workers, uh, united and have had an impact on essential workers so to ask so the the this elite group certainly may contribute money to candidates but if you notice uh, one group for example uh, gave money to Hillary Clinton and they gave the same amount of money to uh, Donald Trump so what these these elite do is give everybody a little bit of money, and they give them all the same amount of money. They just want to have a place at the table no matter who is elected. So our power still remains in the electric. I think that um, we need to educate ourselves and organize because uh, workers of the world knew in the 19th century If this country, if Congress made Labor Day, passed legislation creating a National Labor Day in 1894 after Oregon led the charge in uh, 1887 and 32 states followed, that's what happens when people take over the micro uh, politics and they develop a movement. We see that movement happening on the right right now with this Alex group and this voter suppression bills and all these speaking points and the draft legislation that's provided to these individual legislatures in this republic across the land. So I think those rich people simply contribute to... uh, uh, the campaigns because they want the folks to know their voice, know whom they are. Because quite often, uh, people who run in uh, local politics, they're not necessarily um, – it's a type of public service for many. And they're not mingling and running with the rich. And as Brother Haki said, on that Upper West si- Upper East Side are some of the wealthiest people in the world. And as for that one address on Park Avenue, they wanted to make themselves seem uh, more elite than the the old gentry. Because I've been in those apartments over there on Fifth Avenue. As they're like mansions, two stories, elevators, servants' quarters, that kind of thing. Well, that's how the old gentry, the old rich live, and the, their townhomes, but they're not selling them. So what some developer did was came up with the idea to create 44 Park Avenue and did so. And it just goes to show you the super rich can be had too because I don't think the resources and the materials and the structure of their building is as superior as the older buildings. And at a time of global warming, you don't see any geothermal floors, heated floors in those units. You don't see any solar panels. You don't see anything that puts them on 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 the front page of environmental science and being chic, environmentally chic. They just paid a lot of money to someone who built a building. I feel they were suckers. And as far as what happens in American politics, a game. These rich folks give equal money to anybody who's running. Right now we see in the the city of New York, there is a mayoral election um, that will be coming up soon, and there's several candidates. And if you look at their campaign finance uh, papers, if they look like they have a chance, then the rich folks are contributing to them. And again, most often for those that are just trying to have a voice at the table, they give the same amount. To everyone. Now, there are sometimes politicians or certain interests that support one guy more than another, another, and they may really try to beef up his campaign and get him elected. But I think Forty Four Park Avenue was just a media hype, hype, some media hype because they couldn't afford, and the people that own those uh, that that gold property. In Manhattan are not selling, and Manhattan has so many vacants, vacancies, and so many alleged luxury buildings. I saw where rents were dropping in New York City from ten thousand a month to three thousand. Really, was it ever worth ten thousand? So, you know, a lot of that is just hype, and those are the nouveau rich who live at one address. And they get to patronize each other. Would never want to be in their position. Uh, You know, I hope to live green, live in a place that's built with real wood, real plaster, not to be uh, suffering the environmental hazards of living with laminate floors and um, committing environmentally unsound practices, Look, I understand they had bamboo floors up there. Look, they didn't even give them hardwood floors. They had to order uh, certain features if they wanted them. Well, bamboo is sustainable in East Asia or in Asia, but it's certainly not sustainable in the United States, but it is cheap. So, again, this is Labor Day. I think we should stand solid with the laborers. Remember what happened in 1887 in Oregon and, and with workers being organized across the nation, what happened in 32 states, so that by the time 1893 rolled around, there was a solid bill on that hill that was supporting labor, and that Labor Day was formally recognized as a national holiday, so this is a great weekend for us working people, us working class people and uh, I believe uh, the future is bright, and that uh, education and uh, education is the way uh, to liberation and I look at those workers up in Worcester mass as i said where um the many people workers are standing in solidarity with the nurses uh who have the largest nurses continuous uh nurses largest continuous nurses strike in 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 the commonwealth history that's something to really think about and uh again in Colorado where uh the uh, people were networking and organizing and gained some real labor protection for farm workers. And hey
1: Okay, the, the rich, okay sister the Rich
3: bought thirty one units in a, in a in a in a in a in a building that's not particularly Significant architecturally, environmentally, or anything—they just spent a lot of money. Thank you, Sister,
5: Sister Eleanor. When mm-hmm. I look at this documentary, Park Avenue, Money Power, and the American Dream. Again, to listen, audience, it's important for you going, and um take a look at that documentary because it give you a critique or the overall political structure and functioning of of, of this society in this country. And in, in essence, we're talking about capitalism. But when I look at this documentary, and I would like Haki to respond to this, and others can respond afterwards, when I look at this documentary, I thought uh, when we talk about the donor club and the nature of these uh, wealthy individuals, among the elite, 1% among the 1%, what it showed to me and what it stated real clearly is that basically in order for a candidate just to even be considered to get on, a, on, on the ballot, they need money. So they come to those who have the money. They even stated that without their endorsement, this probably for any kind of people would know who to be on the ballot, they would not be in position for anyone to vote for. So in essence, they talk about how they do choose, the choices that you will have are one to choose who to vote for. That's number one. Number two, it was clear to me when I look at that doc- doc- documentary, I viewed the rich and wealthy as a bunch of pimps and and, and, pimps and um, hustlers and the politicians as whores and prostitutes. Damn. They had down near 99.9% of all of these congressmen went and begged and needed their money to acquire the position that they are in. Now, when you're talking about capitalism and you're talking about power influence, you tell me, when you're talking about voting, do you think the politicians truly vote in the interest of the people or you vote according to who those people are holding to based on the monies that they had to receive? Maybe I'm missing something here, Brother Hockey, what is your take on that understanding when you saw the documentary? Well, brother after
6: you, you're not missing anything. I will go a step further. Uh, keep in mind, there's um there's an old um, experiment called Pavlov's dog. Remember that, in which um, when you if you if you give him a, a certain a certain uh, certain food and reward him with that food, if you keep giving him that food, he would keep on performing. Well, politicians are the same, and the wealthy understand that. They understand that the more they invest in their in their uh, attempts to gain access to office, they understand that the more that they more more they, more policy they implement that empowers the wealthy, they understand they can anticipate more funds in the future, and so therefore they do this conditioning process. So let's not deceive ourselves from thinking that uh, somehow that these politicians are altruistic, uh, that they really give about the masses of people. That's simply not the case. But with respect to the the, the donor party, the donor class, so when you talk about 1% or 2% of the population, only 90% of the GDP, 90% of the wealth of the country in the hands of a – you're talking about – essentially, you're talking about uh, uh, the top – well, specifically, if you talk about the top 10% or 1% of the population, about 200,000 individuals, these individuals on average give $5,000 store political contributions. Uh Michael Lynn wrote a book entitled The American Nation and this book specifically talks about how the wealthy people decide who enters positions of power, whether you're talking about Congress or or the, or, the, or the Senate on a, on a federal and state level. So clearly, uh one of the things that I find ironic is that there have been several attempts, um, uh, you know, by uh, democratic lawmakers to implement uh, you know, getting money out of politics. Strangely, you know, Neither Democratic or Republican politicians supported that bill. I wonder why they didn't support that bill. If you remove this this, 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 this money stipulation that you alluded to, Brother Africa, uh, in terms of deciding who can run for, 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 for office based upon money, then you open up the avenues to, to, to more progressive individuals to actually run for these offices to act bring about real change. But that is precisely the point. If you open up this process to the rank and file, then you, then you, then you not only you run this, the, the 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 problem of potentially exposing the system for what it is, but you actually get people in positions of power who are actually advocating for real change. And by, by virtue of having positions of power, they're in position to influence the masses of people to advocate for more change. And so therefore, people in positions of power understand it's not in their interest to form any kind of bill that's going to take money out of the political system. So that's very very clear. But just in terms of impact, when we talk about the influence of money, let's be very, very clear on something. When we talk about the influence of money, it, 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 it exceeds the political whim. It, exi- it, have, it exists throughout the entire the, the of American structure, political structure. Particularly when we talk about, remember when we talk about critical race theory in 1619 project. Now these are projects specifically geared to gear toward getting the people to understand the history of this country and to address some of those systematic wrongs that have permeated the society, you know, for centuries. Well, guess who's been in, in opposition to the, to the critical race theory in 1619 Project? They're very wealthy. Well, how did they express their, their resentment in terms of the critical race theory 1619 Project? They fund who? Politicians. They, the politicians. Politicians on the front line to advocate against critical race theory 1619 Project. The power of money. Look at the media. When you talk about particularly when you talk about Google Google and all of these, these telecommunications companies, you look at in terms of you know, how difficult it is to convey progressive ideas, the reason is very very clear. That telecommunications understand that their vested interests are tied into, you know, working with people who have money. In order to make money you work with people who got money. And so therefore it's in their interest to play ball with the powerful. So therefore, Powerful does not want progressive voices on in on telecommunication platforms, and so they do. They 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 limit them and they elevate conservative voices. Is that a coincidence? No, it's the power of money. I don't know. It's 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 not rocket science. It's very 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 clear. Uh, one of the things is you know when we talk about in terms of the, in terms of the role of money, let's let's understand
1: something. One of the things the article bring up is a very very good point. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, Ike. We can hear you. Go on. Go ahead. Oh, oh
6: my, um, yeah, my yes, phone, we can. My phone is acting crazy. Yeah, my phone is acting crazy. Okay, but in any event, so, so when we talk about in terms of the role, in terms of money, in terms of influence, policy in society, one of the things that's very clear, this article points out, back in the 60s, all, the, all those journalists who actually talked about the plight of poverty, why people, poverty exists in America, and society's wealth as America, why poverty exists. Those lawyers, those those journalists, were systematically eliminated. They brought in lawyers from Ivy League schools. Why would you bring in journalists from Ivy League schools? Simply because they understood. I believe people in Ivy League schools understand the game, and so they understand that there's money to be made. And as a consequence, those people in position of power, or who run these media agencies, they actually up increase the salaries. I mean, they I mean they literally increase the salaries threefold to make sure that these journalists have adequate of sal- uh, salaries. The reason they did that is one, is not only to, to buy the journalists, but to make sure that the journalists understand that as long as you play by our rules, the wealth is the wealthy people's rules, as long as you play by their rules, then you can you can expect the easy you can expect the easy street. You can expect relative ease in terms of your career in terms of making money. And so that's precisely the role of money. That's what this what money does. And that's what we've got to be understanding. We, you know, as much as we would like to believe that you know, these politicians are out here trying, you know, to, to advocate on behalf of the masses of people, the bottom line just doesn't exist. You've got a few out here actually talking about saying some good things. You know, Cory Bush is saying some good things. Um, um, uh, Alexander Castro Cortez is saying some good things. But the bottom line is that the things that they say are negated, you know, by a party, was totally indifferent to what they're what they're, what they're saying if they understand to embrace what they're saying is not in their interest. Their interest is to make money. It's very very clear. It's very very simple. And so, if we think that we're going to vote and and bring the most progressive people into into political office and they're going to make a difference, the political system is not established established that way. The only way conceivable you could do that, if the ranking if the ranking file invested in particular leadership and uh, you know, uh, if they get providing they have enough enough resources, they can make sure that they finance that person's uh, candidacy, and hopefully that per, that person uh, gets into office. That person then becomes free to advocate truly what the masses of people really need. But the problem is that it's one of finances. When you, when you factor in inflation in terms of what it is it want a campaign, it become extremely expensive media coverage is extremely expensive. They're not gonna make it easy for you to have access to the media when you in the candidacy. It's gonna be expensive. So why do they do that? Because they wanna limit the voices out there. And the voices that are heard will represent the very wealthiest in society. So clearly, let's be clear, let's be realistic about this and understand that we're talking about a system in place. And 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 unless that unless we eradicate or destroy, or get rid of that system, then the bottom line is more of the same is gonna Going to happen into
5: the future. Okay, let's bring in Brother Anthony, and we're talking about the sole question of the role of those who live in the area of Park Avenue up in Washington D.C. The elite among the elite, and how they influence and control the political process and system. Brother Anthony, as you watch that documentary, Park Avenue, talking about money, power, and American dream talking about how the elite control financially and politically the politicians. When you look at that, that, that behavior, that relationship, one question I raised earlier was, what can we do to make these people feel uncomfortable? How do we deal with that contradiction? When you're talking about so-called democracy and voting, while on the other hand, your politicians are financially tied to those who donate to them. Your response, brother Anthony, to this phenomenon? Uh,
10: well, lastly, um, well, lastly, the um, the system has to be destroyed, and the system I'm talking about is capitalism, which is which allows this sort of thing to occur. But uh, let's see, short of that. Only a reform in the way, it only changes in the way com, political campaigns are financed, will uh, you know, will, 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 will end the monopoly that the wealthy have over political uh, 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 political elected positions and uh let's see and uh one reform would be that uh you know uh to end private financing of campaigns in other words uh in other words instead of uh in other words including the candidates themselves they cannot and uh you know to take a pay, uh, to take an example from uh uh you know socialist cuba uh they have elections but the candidates cannot use their own money to finance their uh, their campaigns the campaigns are publicly uh, are fi- uh, are financed with government funds and uh and uh that levels the playing field in other words in other words someone who's wealthier uh does not have an unfair unfair vanish of someone who who is not who is uh poor financially and it's only under this sort of arrangement. That the, ple- the 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 playing field can be leveled so that uh, people uh, candidates can be chosen based upon their beliefs and their ability, not so much uh, how many resources they command.
5: Okay, to our listening audience, thank you, Anthony. This is part three of deception, the deception, control, and power. One of the things you try to do with Africa on the Move is to evaluate information so you can think. Mm-hmm. And digital organization not for, so you can not only think clearly, but act in a way that you can bring about positive change. What we want to do as it relates to the third part, deal with deception, control, and power. We highlighted a documentary that we encourage you to go to YouTube. There's title, How the Elite Control the World, The Rich Getting Richer, the upper class, and money in America. Okay, we want you to go get a chance to check this out, but meanwhile, we're going to play this this evening. want you open up your ears, and once you get finished, we can have a dialogue on this particular um, documentary. So right now, we're going to play how they leak, control the world, the rich getting richer, the upper class, and money in America. We want you to get a better understanding, in essence, or uh, what is that, that you are fighting against? So you can have a better understanding of what you're fighting for. So sit back, take some notes, and we'll be right back with the discussion. We'd like to have your input as well by calling three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. So let's listen to how the elite control the world.
10: Well, we've talked today about students beginning their careers. We've talked about correspondents ending their careers. We've talked about, about the names. A.J. Liebling and I.F. Stone have come up. Uh, one of the things I most admire about the profession is that it has allowed some people to say what they mean and to uh, stand by it, to live by it. Uh, Lewis Lapham, uh, editor of Harper's, described uh, yesterday's <coughs> New York Observer as America's favorite grouchy magazine editor. I don't, I don't think of him that way. I think of him as an iconoclast. I think of him as a trenchant observer, someone who says exactly what, he's, what he means and says it extremely well, and someone who provokes me uh, and sometimes elucidates, sometimes provokes. But I think that's the very best tradition of uh, American journalism. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Lewis Lapham.
9: I'm uh, delighted to be here. I see many friends in the room, and I'm um, sorry I didn't get the piece out of Mister Frank, and but um, I was—I thought I was going to come and talk to a very small lunch and tell old stories about the days when I was a foreign correspondent and so forth. But Bill persuaded me to talk about the uh, new American ruling class, which is. Uh, subject to which I and how does journalism fit into the new order so I'm not a Marxist and I'm not a revolutionary I'm sometimes I'm not even a grouch but the (laughs) I know that the the word class arouses suspicion and uneasiness in an American audience and I have no objection to a ruling class no country can exist without a ruling class that was true in uh, Rome in the first century. That was true in the United States in 1787. That was true in Britain at the Zenith of the Empire, and it's true now. So the only question in my mind is what kind of a ruling class, uh, what, what's, the na- what's its nature, what, what, what's the character, and what's its worth made to what specifications, and with what uh, passions or objectives in mind. And it, it seems to me that the American uh, ruling class or governing class or possessing class, whatever you want to call it, my favorite term for it is equestrian class because that is an old Roman term. The rank was for sale for 400,000 sesterces in, in Rome in the first century AD. and, the, and, and the governing class in America is its a rank that is for sale. That's also always been true in the United States. But something has happened to that class over the last 50 years, I think. I think it is no longer a specifically American class. I, I think it's lost its interest in politics. And I don't think it has much use uh, for an intelligent press. And you will now ask me, who are we talking about? And the figures vary, and numbers of other writers have written on this subject. Bill Greider has written about it, Kevin Phillips, Christopher Lash, Michael Lynn. Essentially what we're talking about is that one or two percent of the American population that owns 90 percent of the nation's wealth and 75% of its capital assets. It's an oligarchy. Uh, It's not a large percentage, but it's a fairly large absolute number. I mean, maybe we're talking about two million people, perhaps. Uh, Essentially, these are the people who write the laws, who write the news, who run the schools, direct the corporations, uh, own the media, and own the banks. Uh, the rich and the servants of the rich. Lind, Michael Lind, in his book that he published last uh, summer called The American Nation, uh, refers to what he calls the Donor Party. The Donor Party is the group of no more than 200,000 people in the United States who give political campaign gifts in excess of $5,000. To become a candidate, you must be... First elected by the donor party, that is the beginning and end of, of the American democracy. It's 200,000 people, because if you don't have money, you you don't unless you're Steve Forbes or Perot, you have no, you, you don't even appear on television. The another way of describing the the um, the oligarchy or the equestrian class would be to just think of the shoppers on Madison Avenue or Rodeo Drive or the residents of the zip code section in New York, uh, in New York, New York 10021, which is this narrow golden rectangle in the city of Manhattan, where the annual income is something like $2 billion a year income within that one zip code section. Another way to think of it would be the way that the public broadcasting network thinks of it, which is um, I did a book show on television for a couple of years for PBS, and there, the, the, the PBS number, which is like the Harper's number, for the total universe of Americans that is that makes the market for the trade list of the New York Times books, uh, for magazines like Harper's the New Yorker, Foreign Affairs, for the uh, documentaries that appear on PBS for most of the leading policy journals and so forth, we're talking about no more than two million people, if that many. That's the whole universe. Now, the people that uh, essentially live within that universe, um, run the schools, own the banks, write the laws, and so forth. Um, would it's the view from the box seats. And the first thing that's changed in the last 50 years is the sense of responsibility. I believe, maybe I'm a romantic, but I do believe that 50 years ago, this class felt some degree of responsibility toward the lower orders. There was a sense that privilege entailed obligation. The attitude was derived in part from the attitude of the British ruling class, the late part of the 19th century, (coughs) from whom the Americans picked up the white man's burden in the direction of Rudyard Kipling, who wrote that poem. As a matter of fact, as a campaign speech for Teddy Roosevelt. But (coughs) that attitude is also confirmed by the American victories in World War II. And I I happen to have been thinking a great deal about this subject lately because I am writing a book about the social and intellectual history of Yale University over the second half of the American century, 1950 to the year 2000. The American century, as you know, is a phrase coined by Henry Luce, Yale 1919, uh, former chairman of the Yale Daily News and so forth, and the whole sense of American Empire, American primacy, American supremacy, American obligation, is very much in place at Yale in the 1950s, which is when I was there as an undergraduate, and several of the professors in both the English department and the history department were recruiters for the CIA. The sense that of a a noble mission of bringing the uh, light to a darkened world. Uh, The career was very much part of the milieu. And Yale then, as Yale now, is in the business of making the American equestrian class. That is why one pays $26,000, $27,000 a year to send a child to either Yale, Harvard, Princeton, or the other universities that do this sort of thing. The people uh, in the 50s identified themselves with an an American commonwealth. There was um, an American ideal, there was an American idea, there was a sense of obligation. I don't think that the current um, kids, the the, the ones that I know at New Haven, (coughs) or the our current uh, oligarchy has the same feeling at all. I think that the members of the American equestrian class today incline to think of themselves as uh, align themselves with an international economic order rather than an American commonwealth. There's very little patriotism in in this among the people that I'm talking about. They have more in common with their peers, uh, their economic peers, in England, Japan, or Germany, than they do with their, with the run-of-the-mill Americans in Omaha or Sin City. And it, you see it in the character of somebody like Richard Nixon, who was very much at home with the Shah of Iran or Ferdinand Marcos or Noriega, people of that, those are the kind of people that he liked, could talk to, understood, uh, deep fear and hatred of the ordinary American citizen. Um, Corporations, the American corporations today receive much, if not most, of their income from abroad. Coca-Cola now no no longer has a domestic division. Uh, It's a world company and the so they're not thinking in terms of the uh, of an American nationalist uh, uh, economics. A lot of is, you, this is also obviously true of the movie industry, uh, which without foreign sales uh, cannot afford to pay the kinds of salaries they now pay. It's also true of our um, banking industries and the airlines and so on. So. It's an international economic uh, world order. And and this is very clear. I sound like Buchanan, but Buchanan is right in this. I I don't think this is a matter of opinion. I think this is a matter of uh, sheer statistics. You can see it with uh, NAFTA. You can see it in any number of ways. I I saw it most clearly uh, the year that the Challenger exploded. The six months after the Challenger exploded, AT&T and GE were called to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because the Cold War was still going on, and AT&T and GE had decided to send up their newest satellite on a Soviet rocket. It was the only rocket going, and the Foreign Relations Committee took 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 this very seriously and said you can't do this, this is trading with the enemy and so on, this is our most sophisticated technology and so forth and so on and the, the two corporations said we really don't care what you think Senator, it, it's not important because this is about money and if we don't send it up on the Russian rocket we're going to lose to the French we can't afford to lose to the French and you could make the speech to you know your friend at the Council on Foreign Relations but no, and goodbye. Um, another way of looking at the um, increasing isolation of the American equestrian order is in the move to the suburbs. That's everybody. A lot of other people have written about that, but we now have a country that is becoming increasingly feudal in its organization. We have... Uh, the United States spends... billion a year on public law enforcement. That includes all forms of public law enforcement. City, county, sheriffs, FBI, Justice Department, and so forth. We spend $40 billion on private law enforcement. Again, it's the retreat from the public realm. Privatization of everything. The private is, is 50 years ago, the notion of the public sector, the public sphere, the public commonwealth would have connoted a good. Today in most uh, usages the word public connotes filth, squalor, incompetence, bad housing, fool politicians, and leaking brains, and so forth, and the word private. Is associated with the clear trout streams of Colorado, and all good things flow from the private sector as opposed to the public sector. That is uh, something that has happened in, in in 50 years. Another another way you see the uh, withdrawing is the sense of the American sense of humor. 50 years ago, most of the jokes or many of the jokes were the have-nots making fun of the haves. This was the humor of Mencken, this was the humor of the movies of the 30s, this was the humor of the New Yorker in the 30s and so on. Today it's reversed. The humor is the haves making fun of the have-nots. It's the humor of the David Letterman show, it's the humor of PJ O'Rourke, it's the the humor of the uh, hip movies of uh, Quentin Tarantino. I happen to find it very repellent, but nevertheless, it is the the uh, tone that's in place. second thing that's happened in the last 50 years, and corollary to what I'm talking about at, in terms of the character of the American equestrian class, is the absence of interest in history or politics. <coughs> the, uh, one would have expected circa 1950, 1955, even as late as 1960, that the uh, people who enjoyed economic privilege would also be interested in the history of the United States, uh, interested in the intellectual content of the media, of newspapers. I went to work at uh, the New York Herald Tribune in 1960, which was the paper then owned by John A. Whitney a leading Republican uh, presence in, in New York and on that wing of the Republican Party. And he, his ownership of the Tribune at the time was in the line of Pulitzer, who was the Democrat, or Greeley, who was a Republican, or even Colonel McCormick of the Chicago Papers, who was extreme, what we would today call extreme right. But Whitney's interest was primarily uh, a political one. He had had an idea. He had a political idea. And the ownership of the uh, the papers reflected that. Uh, They no longer do. I mean, now you would not associate, I would not uh, associate uh, the corporations that own, the networks, or that own the big, or the Disney company, or whatever the big media syndicates are, with a political idea, I'd associate them with an economic idea, uh, with the new international economic world order. Yes, but with a with an idea that uh, that somehow politics mattered, I wouldn't think so, and, and you can see that. Uh, Uh, In the newspapers this morning, the front page of the Times today talks about the money likely to flow to the Democrat and Republican candidates for the House in next November's election. And clearly the lines are the same lines as as Dwayne Andreas, uh, the head of ADM, who gives with the left hand to the Democrat and to the right hand with the Republican, because it really doesn't matter. Uh, there, there is only, in, in my view and lots of other people's view, there is only one political party in the United States at the moment. And the point is power. The point is to be, have connection, to have access to uh, the committee or to the tax legislation or to the telecommunications bill. Or it, it, it has very little to do with, with ideas. That is again a change, I think, over the last 50 years. Um, you see this at, uh, at on the stage at Yale University. You no longer can study uh, political history, uh, American political history. There is something called cultural studies. So the histor- the, American, the telling of the American tale, has been broken down into telling of, of the Black American tale, or the feminist American tale, or the ethnic Native American American tale and so forth and so on. And you can go through the entire, uh, you can take uh, as the, um, there is no curriculum. That went in the 60s. But you, you know, in order to satisfy the requirement for late 18th century history in the United States, you can take it in uh, domestic pewter, butter churns, uh, the plight of women on the frontier, and so forth. All interesting subjects, but, but uh, not a coherent historical um, okay. view All uh, right. If, if, if I'm correct then in the two uh, points about the American equestrian class over the last 50 years, point one being the, the feeling of no responsibility toward the less fortunate and uh, two the absence of interest in either uh, History or politics, as as a passionate interest. Then what then becomes the uh, the function of the press? And the again the, the parallels to me are very similar. When I first started working for the newspapers, I, my first job was as a newspaper reporter for the San Francisco Examiner in 1957, a Hearst newspaper, and I was the only uh, Ivy League person in the entire place. To use the word journalist was, would have been, uh, nobody used the word journalist. O- only Englishmen and fops used the word journalist. <laughs> Americans used the word uh, reporter or newspaperman. Uh, nobody was paid any money, I meant to speak of, and nobody expected to make any monies. I mean, there was, one did not go into uh, newspaper reporting to become rich. One came in for, probably in my case, romantic ideas growing out of the uh, depression and out of the autobiographies of novelists on the order of John O'Hara and his Hemingway, but the notion was to somehow get at the truth and tell the story. It's a romantic notion, but the, uh, there was, uh, and we tended as, as, as newspaper guys, to identify with the people in the bleachers, not with the people in the box seats. That changed in the middle 60s. By 1967, um, the, the ranks of, the, uh, of uh, the newspaper, what was the newspaper business, begins to fill up with people from Harvard and Yale and Princeton. The salaries begin to go up to 300000 $400,000 a year for television personalities. And the identification shifts from the uh, the crowd and the bleachers.
5: Welcome back to Africa on the move. You will listen, listen to a clip of a documentary titled How the Elite Control the World, the Rich Getting Richer, the Upper Class and Money in America. Now, I thank you in terms of when we listen to the documentary, it raise one fundamental question, and the question is, who is or what is a new American ruling class? There you know, Malcolm once taught us that history is best to reward those who research. In the book, Out of War, one of the first things they mention is, you must know your enemy, which means that we must constantly know the changes that are taking place within our environment and during certain historical times and periods. So when we talk about this new American ruling class, it doesn't necessarily have the same behavior that maybe the class 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and maybe not. But the position of the documentary is that when you look at this new American ruling class, one of the things you'll find out is that it has no respect for American history and politics. And I can sort of understand that because they know it's a bunch of bullshit. Number two, they talk about it has no compassion for the people and for the poor. None at all, and don't think they have no responsibility, Would leads to when you analyze your enemy, it means that your enemy will be very rootless. They also talk about other contradictions that we need to be aware of about this particular ruling class people. But one the really important issue is the issue of their interests. This illusion about a national boundary and identity of being American, it doesn't exist in that world. They understand that their interest lies in the interests of those who line themselves up with them economically. The capital elites of the very countries see themselves as one and not by the boundary of the country in which they live, which also means and will give you a sense of maybe how future decisions, political decisions will be made and played out in terms of how and where walls would be begin, where they were in, and who they would identify as your enemies. So those are just some of the contradictions, and one other contradiction they talk about. If you look at the so-called new American ruling elite, is they understand at this stage of time of capitalist development about privatization. It has no respect for public projects and welfare. And and they are willing to invest $29 billion into the police intelligence military uh, complex. So all about force to make it right. Now you create all of these ingredients of analyzing this present class of ruling people, throughout. Now you have the equation of how do you deal with such a ruling class? And I will pose that question to my panelists right now. I start off with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, you heard a documentary. You heard somewhat a capitalization or summarization of some of the points or raised in it. And your response to how do you deal with the so-called new American ruling class, not to limit to America, but ruling class unique period on a global basis. Brother Anthony, your response.
10: Okay. Uh some of the trends that the uh, uh that the moderator laid out uh follow uh follow the trends in terms of capitalism. And uh the ruling uh let's see and one of the things that that occurred in in history uh and this and and this is where uh the 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 u s civil war becomes critical is because it represented the uh the triumph of the um uh, of the capitalist bourgeoisie Over the slave owners this was critical from an economic standpoint because in an it it allowed the u.s. to emerge as a full-blown capitalist society kind of like Germany and uh, it was somewhat different from the uh, from the older uh the 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 ruling classes in some of the uh in the uh some of the older countries like britain and france and uh italy or spain for that matter and uh and uh one of the things that happened was um an intense an intensification of the industrialization process which was led by Germany and the US. And uh and uh, what happened is that as uh capitalism intensified its development, it became imperialism. And imperialism uh represents the dominance of finance capital over industrial capital. And uh and as the moderator pointed out during his presentation, imper- uh, uh today's capitalists do not re- uh respect political boundaries. Uh which were uh which were uh drawn up uh to keep uh the the uh the various uh ruling elites from fighting against each other uh you know and um and uh you see an intensification of the organization of the ruling elite or the ruling bourgeoisie they've become more united in terms of their effort uh to preserve and uh consolidate power and also uh and also along with this you see an intensification of the organization of the working class, also. So uh, you know, so as capitalism develops, uh, all the it tears all the old political relationships asunder as it develops, and uh, pretty soon you just have two classes, the haves and the have-nots, uh, to put it in a. Uh, you know in, in in simplified terms and uh so you have as capitalism uh you know develops into world imperialism um, you know political boundaries become less important it is economic boundaries and ideologies that become more important, and that is why the clash is against the workers and against socialism versus capitalism. That struggle is intensifying. And uh, that's some of the things I took away from the uh, p- p- presentation.
5: Thank you, Brother FT Brother Haki, as we look at the new American looting class, one of the things this document talk about is when you talk about corporations, you talk about ruling class, they realize that to make their money, it comes from abroad. So therefore, they have no allegiance to uh, um, what takes place inside America. Now, looking at all these characteristics of, of, of the elite and the powerful, what do you surmise in terms of how to best deal with them, given these various characteristics of behavior? Because at this point in time, it's very clear that they understand they want global control. And they also understand that these illusions of being a Democrat and Republican and listening to these politicians, you know, they take orders from them. Politicians don't give them order. So how do you deal? How, how would you propose to the people? How should we deal with this so-called new American ruling class, Brother Hackey?
1: yeah well,
6: first for
5: Africa, I think when you talk
6: about in terms of how they derive the money, we got to be very very careful about that. Clearly, they make money from international investments in terms of stocks and bonds abroad, and there's no question about that, but a much bigger way, a much more concisely, way in terms of making wealth is generated right here in the country and that is namely when we talk about qualitative easing, we talk about the government you know unilaterally you know putting up large sums of money that money directly benefits the wealthy. And so, therefore, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to create jobs. You don't do anything. The money is guaranteed. Superimposed upon a situation where you have all kind of accounting practices, which makes it impossible for you not to pay taxes. So the bottom line is that the richer get richer exponentially, and we get poor, and poorer and poorer and poorer. So clearly, Brother Africa, in terms of, in terms of the, the money question, uh, you know they have no problem, even if the rest of the world didn't exist. Uh, they will still generate money simply because it's structured that way to make sure the welfare become wealthier become wealth and wealth wealthier. But the question in terms of how do you how do you deal with that, brother guess this is a very complex question because the bottom line is that, you know, one of the things is that the ruling class, the so called new ruling class, uh, you know, see the masses of people as an as an impediment. They see them as a bother. Uh, you know, often, you know, the the thinking or the philosophy of Anne Rand, you know, uh runs um, you know, squarely in the minds of a lot of these people who are musicians of power. and when the philosopher out of Russia, position was very, very clear, that to help people is, is morally deficient, that you don't help people, That is only a, a weak person will actually help another person. Or the notion that greed is good and that to trample over people is natural, that's an intelligent thing to do and it's a moral thing to do. And if you don't trample over people, then you're not living up to your moral capacity. So you've got this convoluted kind of logic that exists in the minds of these wealthy people, and so therefore they're doing what they do in terms of their benefits. In that context, because they see the masses of people who don't have money, who don't have capital, they see them as the pediment. The question for them is, is very, very simple. What do you do with all those people that you don't have any need for? Keep in mind, wealth we don't need labor to produce wealth anymore. Uh, that's, that's done by a keystroke of a computer. Uh, the Federal Reserve prints up the money. You know the money to distribute you know to the wealthy and and that's that, and so therefore you don't need labor in terms of create you know how to create anything, you know how to build anything, produce anything to create wealth so for them, the question is that they they're assured of wealth, but the bigger problem is what's so just what do you do to all these people who don't have access to wealth? what do you do know, all these people who are drained in their estimation a drain on the economy That is the bigger question, and the question is what are we going to do in terms of understanding that reality and preparing ourselves for the eligible because we understand. And these people in positions of power have a unique opportunity, unique ability by propaganda to actually condition people to believe whatever they want them to believe. If uh, they, they want people to believe that critical race theory is a bad thing, that somehow it's anti-white, you've got a thousand women population going to believe that. They're not going to investigate for themselves. They're going to simply believe because the media keeps telling them over and over again critical race theory is a bad thing. So clearly, you know, uh, I think the onus is on the masses of people in terms of what would our response be, and specifically when we talk about the African community, we got to be very, very clear on something. When we talk about in terms of any kind of um, um, uh, carnage being unleashed on a the populace, then we got to understand that African people fit squarely in that phenomenon, and we we, we got to understand that, and uh, and as such, you know that uh, we're targeted, but not only his, I mean, not only historically. But because we're targeted economically, then we got to understand that we're in a very vulnerable position, and so it's incumbent upon us, you know, to organize to the, to the, to the maximum extent possible. We have to. We don't have any choice. Uh, don't listen to those black conservatives who tell you everything is fine. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Just don't, don't you know, be ignorant. Don't know anything about history. Don't know anything about policy. Don't know about economics. Just, just, just trust the system, and everything's going to be all right. Well, we take that position, there. the bottom line is that when the when, when upheaval arrives, you know, and, and when we talk about this kind of ensuing destruction, we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. We're telling, we, we say to people now, listen, this is the situation, this is the scenario, this is the economic reality, this is the political reality, this is what's happening. We're telling you now, we're telling you stuff now in hopes that you understand the necessity in terms of organization because you understand the seriousness of the situation that we're, 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 we're confronting, the situation that we're quickly arriving at. We do that and hope that people understand the reality. But if people' position is that no, 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 no—that propaganda has more of a hold on the way I think anybody else is saying. Uh, particularly when it comes to progressive analysis, then any kind of any kind of uh, um, any kind of, um, um, of destruction that we face as a result of not understanding what's clearly going on, then you know, the bottom line is that we can only blame ourselves. You know, of course, you know, and and I, I think that's 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 the biggest onus. As far as the wealth is concerned, you know they're going to do what they got to do. They're committed to power, and this notion that they came from England for economic freedoms—they didn't come from England for economic freedoms. They came from England to be just like the English, and that's precisely what they did. And so, when it, so when the Speaker talks about on that clip talks about uh, a sense of responsibility of the wealthy have declined, I disagree. The wealthy have never had a responsibility to, to to the poor people. In fact. One of the things when you talk about um the, the, the Thirteen College, one of the things they implemented was Poor Poor Relief Act. The poor, poor Relief Act was simply some a a a psychological ploy to compel or, or coerce labor into working. What they did was, was simply people who were firm, people who were crippled, who were who were for whatever reason mentally incapacitated, or people who uh had various kind of or, or cancer, whatever. Those kind of people receive a, a little bit of assistance, you know, from from the state to meet their, psych, their physiological needs, just enough, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know that where they continue, continue to suffer. So the laborers could see that even though these people were infirm, they were suffering, they were sick, even though they were no second predicament. The response from the wealthy was that we only can do the bare minimum. It's sort of like when you think about. Uh, 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 welfare today. They give the people a hundred, two hundred dollars a month, and tell them, you know, you got a, you, got a, you got a, a mother and, and a child or two children, one or two children, and they say live on it. And the way they are treated is gives, uh, is, it's an incentive. At least they think it, it provides an incentive for others, you know, not to be on welfare because they see the appalling treatment that the people on welfare receive. The same thing was implemented back in, back in the 16th century. So nothing has changed. So this notion that in fact that the sense of responsibility among wealth has actually declined. It never existed. It never really existed. And so, you know, the point is that, you know, Brother Africa, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we have to wake up and realize what the reality is. And if we don't wake up what the reality is, any price that we pay is a consequence of our inaction. So that's just the bottom line, not close with that.
5: Brother Haiky, you made an excellent point of emphasizing again. History is the best to reward those who research We Thank you. According to our sister, Eleanor. Sister, Eleanor, the new elite and wealthy view the people as them, as the enemy. They have designed this captive system in which they see the people as the enemy. Mm-hmm. What would you propose in terms of how should we deal with this so-called new elite? What's your response, Sister,
3: Eleanor? Well, um, Brother Africa, I'd like to uh, just go back previously to the Park Avenue uh, conversation. Uh, I was unable to pick up the article. So what I did was research the uh, construction of the building, and uh, I found that the building wasn't green. It wasn't progressive. It wasn't any of these things. So these aren't progressive people. These are not people that want to be the vanguard, that want to have the best of everything. They're just filthy rich. Um, in reference to uh, the last uh, lecture or that we listened to, I found it uh, very interesting and uh, um, there has become with uh, global imperialism on the rise in the last 50 years, we've seen where uh, the super elite simply want to be with each other, know each other, and experience each other. But I found it interesting um, how some of this started in Germany because the whole idea of race theory started out in the mid-19th century in Germany. Before before this, uh, before then, the world didn't have all these uh, racial categories. And when it first started, it was interesting that Slavics and, and Irish people weren't considered to be a part of the elite white. And how America changed the world by allowing uh, Irishmen, property owners to vote in the United States and how it changed Irish history, the history of Ireland forever. But the history, the Irish people have always stood in solidarity uh, with the African American liberation struggle. But no, these people don't have the political and social consciousness to to know – that every human being matters and they don't know where genius comes from. They don't know where goodness comes from. And certainly just because you're a trillionaire doesn't mean that you are contributing to the advancement of humankind. And uh, these people uh, being elitists are just that. And they are not. The friends of the working class, obviously, they're not contributing to organizing labor. They're not contributing to uh, addressing the issue of global warming. Uh, And it was interesting that the Ivy Leagues for them wasn't a place where they necessarily went for an education. Um, many of the world's richest people didn't attend Harvard or Yale or Princeton. Uh, Or if they did, they may have not completed. And, you know, so there's some, uh, look at Bill Gates, look at some of these people. They're obviously uh, uh, have advanced their interests and have, focused on their work, and uh, this new social media and technology and and microcomputers have changed the world and created a whole new ruling class. But uh, as Brother Hakeem said, these people are not uh, the friends of the working class, nor do they have the interests of the planet at heart or the well-being of anyone other than themselves. And uh, that, that's uh, why they're the 1%. And I mean it uh, with a bit of sarcasm, meaning rather than they may be the wealthiest, but they're also the most backwards in their failure to embrace humankind and to be concerned about advancements uh, in terms of education, health, uh, science um, And uh, addressing issues like food insecurity, housing insecurity, it's ridiculous. And uh, when I looked at that 44 Park Avenue, I just knew they had money to spend. I'm sorry I couldn't uh, see the video for whatever reason, as I told you, Brother Africa. But in terms of this last brother, these Ivy League seems to be where they recruit the workers, the elite workers, the, C- the future CIA officers, and uh, these kind of folks. But they're certainly not necessarily uh, sending their children or their children aren't necessarily being successful in the Ivy. But it's a place for recruitment, they're not concerned with uh, uh, information and the distribution of facts and and science and uh, true journalism. Uh, These things have uh, changed. Uh, I really think that uh, that was solidified in the 1980s with what many people call the Reagan Revolution. Maybe uh, President Reagan thought that he was here to represent the super elite, and the super elite do not have the interests of the people at heart. They do not have the the interests of the masses, and they are not a friend to Mother Earth, and I'll leave it at that. Thank
5: you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Mm -hmm. Moses, give me your take on what do you take from this particular documentary as it relates to the elite and how they are controlling the world. Brother Moses. Yeah, let's well, um did not overcome the people tower, but it's possible for
7: organization. That's that's what we need to focus our on for the issues and needs of the working class and organize in an in a independent party that 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 uh in in the interest of the working class, and so just just we have to get ideologically at, uh, at least on one accord in terms of where we're coming from and where we're going. And uh, you know, but you know, obviously they have money. That's that's that's, that's what they got. They got finance capital. They can pay people to shoot people. They can do all kinds of things with that finance capital. And uh, we have to be aware of that. But we but about to organize, organize people that more powerful. Ain't no power that the power of the evil. And so we, that's
1: what we need to focus on. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Brother Moses. Right now, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do is we're going to take a rupture and a break, and when we come back, we're going to be closing out. We're going to have our political panel analysts give us their final thought on part three, deception, control, and power. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Ooh.
4: my journey, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hello,
1: Hello, Reno.
4: A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods yeah 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 yeah.
5: Yeah 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 yeah. Yeah 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 yeah. My journey. Yeah 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 yeah. This is Africa on the move. This is the voice of Brother Africa. We are closing out on Part 3, Deception, Control, and Power. Before we go through our final thoughts tonight with our political panelist analysts, we would like to make a couple of announcements to our listening audience and to the world that recently today we received an alert that there has been maybe a coup taking place in the country of Guinea in Conakry. President Alpha has is now under the uh, control of the military. We would like to find out more about that because what goes on in Africa definitely impacts our world no matter where we are. So we hope to find out a little more about this, and maybe next week share an update on this recent maybe coup that has taken place in Guinea. Also, we'd like to remind you to listen to audience to come and join African Wellness Association under the banner of the African Wellness Association and other organizations as we can begin to organize our. Black History Education Tool and Culture Tool to Cuba Trip from December 27 to February 3rd, 2022. Please come and join us and email us if you have an interest. You can do that by emailing African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. All lowercase all spelled out together. African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com or email Africa on the move to a Gmail, and we'll make sure that information will get to that organization. Those are our announcements, and we just want to remind you that this program comes on every Sunday from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please spread the word that they can be a part of this beautiful discussion as it relates to what's going on with our people in the world and also to be a platform where you can share your views and your perspective so we can learn collectively. This is what it's all about. So join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. We need your support. So please, at least help us be our audience. By the end of next year, we're going to have at least one million listeners. And we know we can do that with your support. So right now, on the fifth day of September 2021, we close out on our segment, Part 3, dealing with deception, control and power and we we'll get our final thoughts from our political panelists and analysts. We'll go back to your brother Moses and brother Moses, your final thoughts please.
7: Yes. Well we know we know that the the lies and propaganda of the few cannot last forever. We know that that the people united will not we know that people will prevail eventually. So we must rely on our mind and stand on feet and um on that to win over our friends and uh, you know criticism self criticism is necessary in any struggle and and, um, and so we should adhere to that.
1: Uh, um, it's been an enjoyable show. Thank you.
5: There we go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for today's program.
3: Well, um, again, uh, United the uh, the people will never be defeated and I stand in solidarity with the uh nurses strike in Worcester, Massachusetts and uh this is the again, the largest nursing strike in the Commonwealth's history. And uh, congratulations to the people in Colorado this Labor Day for winning protections for the farm workers. And we we stand and to the workers in Texas, in a small county in Texas that uh, are making a headway on uh, essential workers' rights—the people who work in, in grocery stores and and these kind of things. And uh, we have to educate ourselves, educate the youth, give them the tools um, necessary to be able to provide essential services for themselves, such as housing security, uh, to eliminate food insecurity, to improve health conditions, in uh, the United States and the world. And uh, to remember that Labor Day was not given to us by Congress and the bourgeoisie's interest in workers, but it was something that the workers took because they were organizing all over the country where they stood stood in solidarity not only with their neighbors with, but with our brothers and sisters in every state. And we saw positive change, and we can do it now. And uh, remember that, as Brother Akeem said, uh, of course, like uh, we see some progressive politicians, but they need we need others. And as long as the 200,000 donors are given equally to everyone, that lets me know that there's a concern that the electorate does have power and that they can have an impact at the polls. And we need to see legislative change or get these people out of office because if not, we may end up saying in a few years, gee, the weather was really cool. It was a really beautiful weather we had in 2021. And wow, that pandemic wasn't that bad when you look at the next one. So with that, you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to participate. And I wish all the other analysts, uh, wonderful Labor Day. Um, And uh, just to stand united and remember that uh, when we have the tools as workers to advance worker rights through education and uh, cultural solidarity, we will become the rulers of the world. Thank you. And may we move closer and closer to environmental justice every day, social and environmental justice every day. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Susan Eleanor, for your contribution to today's program. now day I'm bringing in Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts?
6: For tonight, Well, Brother Africa, it seems to me the, the writing is on the wall. There's a pervasiveness of a certain philosophy among capitalists which says that individualism is a norm, uh, which says compassion is a sign of weakness, or the poor, poor people are considered parasites and capitalism is moral. Now, given this given this perception among those who are powerful, clearly uh, they don't have high uh, a, a high uh, degree of concern for the plight of uh, poor people in society. Uh, when I think back to 2012 and the 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 Path to Prosperity bill that was passed by Congress, very interesting a very interesting uh, uh, bill. The bill advocated 10 10 trillion dollar tax cuts for the rich. Uh, and uh, the same, to- the same token slashing the capital gains by 15 to 15 percent. Now capital gains are simply taxes on assets as they increase in value. So if I got uh, large, uh, large uh, acres, hectares, or acres of land, and the, the assessment goes up, uh, the asset tax pressure goes up. Uh, I pay considerably less taxes on it, even though the value of my land continues to go up. So it's very, very interesting in terms of the wilderness, in terms to accommodate those who are very, very powerful. But more importantly, when you talk about ten trillion dollars, $10, $10, $10 in trillion dollar cuts for wealthy people, and in all to accommodate those those cuts, you have to cut spending. Also, when you cut, when government cuts spending, who's hurt by that the most? It is poor people. Poor people are hurt by the most. Uh, the mere fact that it doesn't resonate with uh, with with the, with, with the capitalists—that uh, the fact that uh, these cuts these these cuts are going to hurt poor people immensely—the mere fact that they don't care speaks volumes in terms of you know uh, their inner their inner thoughts in terms of how they actually feel about poor people. And if that's an indication that poor lives are superfluous or that they are unimportant, then if that is the and then if that is the and that is the guiding philosophy. And it seems to me that poor people have an obligation for themselves, um, you know, to at least organize, to begin to stand up, and and again to create those kind of institutions in the community that tends to empower. Because without that empowerment, the reality is a lot of things that we come to expect from government, those things, uh, those things are, are, are not going to are not forthcoming. Simply because the bottom line is when you have a situation where the government you know, routinely prints up money to benefit the most wealthy people in society. It means that those, means that the availability of money for those people for services that, are, that, act, that impact the poor are simply not available. so as a consequence, you see a, a, a vast decrease in terms of the amount of kind of money uh, allocated to assist poor people in society. So despite the homelessness, despite the ha- lack of health care, despite the uh, joblessness, despite all those problems that, that adversely impact poor people, those services are being cut. And so given that reality, uh, in, in the capitalist mind, these people you know, who, who, who are paying the price for these cuts, uh, in their minds, their, their pain really doesn't matter. If their pain doesn't really matter, then what does that mean in terms of their lives? Does their lives matter? I would venture to say that if, if the pain of poor people doesn't matter to the capitalist, then certainly your life doesn't matter. In fact, if your life was ended, as far as the capitalist is concerned, that would be a benefit because that's one less person to uh potentially soak up any any resources that unfortunately that that, that may that makes that may come their way. So clearly, you know, uh we got some weird weird problems and so no matter how we cut it, no matter how we pretend everything is fine, no matter how much we want to believe that the government is uh omnipotent, that is that is that is, is everywhere, that is possible, is capable of resolving all of our problems, the bottom line, a lot of problems we face are the direct result of of, of government policy. And so, given that reality, the poor people have to understand that. Listen, the rain's on the wall. Uh, I, I, you know, um, you know, if, if if we don't if we don't grasp that simple reality, the bottom line is that we'll be unprepared for whatever comes down the road. And it's a very very sad commentary. And it's something I don't I don't take any any, any, any solace in, in talking about. I would like to not talk about it at all. But if I did, I would be remiss not to warn people that this stuff is on the way. I mean, and, and it's not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration. To say when we talk about these people on two, on January 6th going to the Capitol to raise hell under the guise that their, their man lost the election or, or the notion that somehow that their man could make things great for white people, uh, we got to understand what the implication means for African people and you know, poor people in the society. And if we haven't glimpsed that, if we don't understand the fundamental reality in terms of that kind of mindset that exists in society, and we're talking about over 73 million people in the society, which is more than... Uh, which is more than the half, which is close to half of the population. If we don't understand that fundamental, or at least the volume population, if we don't understand that fundamental reality, then we're in, we're in big, big trouble. And I certainly hope that people begin to grasp the seriousness of the situation, uh, you know, as it unfolds. But in any event, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, that is key. With all the changes taking place in society, we must begin to understand, we must take make a concerted effort to read as much as we possibly can, to grasp, to get with other people, to compare notes, to talk about this stuff, and to understand precisely what's happening, the implications for us as a people. Having said that, Brother Africa, I will close, and you have a good night.
5: Good night to you, Brother Haki. You have a good night. And to Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Brother
10: Anthony. Yes. uh, My final thought for tonight is that we must, uh, as Nkrumah said, we must organize as, as we never uh, never have before. We must intensify level of organization and political organization uh, because uh, the resources of the earth are getting scarcer, and as they get scarcer, uh, the focus is going be, uh, become uh, the focus on on Africa is going to increase. So we must organize ourselves in order to liberate our our, our motherland and and, and build one unified socialist Africa. That is the only solution to the problems that Africans face worldwide. And to learn more about uh, pan-Africanism and the All-African People's Revolutionary Party G.C., please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org.
5: And we'd like to thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program and to all our friends, supporters, and listening audience. We'd like to thank you as well and remind you that you can listen to this program every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Please spread the word. Um, this year coming up, we want to set a goal. We want to reach at least a million Africans and progressive brothers and sisters throughout the world, and we can't do this without your support. We also want to remind you again, too, to come help join us as we go to our Black History, Education, and Culture Tour to Cuba from December 27th to January 3rd, under the banner of the African Women Association as well as with other local organizations. And last but not least, we just want to remind you that we may not give you what you want, but we'll do the best we can to give you what you need. And we know that without information, you cannot think, And without organization, you cannot think clearly. We encourage you that if you love your people, you want to help your people, want to make your proper contribution, there's only one way you can do that. That is to be through an organization. So I encourage you to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people, and you find one that doesn't desire you to do things that you think you need to be doing, then you have the responsibility to create one yourself. Until next time, if you love Mother Africa, you'll work for Mother Africa. We subscribe always to go forever, back with never, and right today, if I had all the money in the world, this is what I would do with it.
11: the forest, buried beneath the highway, never had a chance to grow, never had a chance to grow, and now it's winter, winter in America. Winter. winter, in America,
1: and
11: ain't nobody fighting, girl. nobody knows what to say, save. save your soul. in vain. and now democracy is ragtime on the corner, a hope friend for rain, that look like he's a hope and, hope and falls rain.
0: To give us the reason why people cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do Cause Palestine, Palestine needs, her freedom. needs her freedom Palestine, Palestine, Palestine needs, needs our love Needs our love Palestine, 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 Palestine needs, her freedom. needs her freedom Palestine Needs our love. <laughs> um, um, uh,
1: um, 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 <laughs> he is my king. king. He's my one, one. Yes, he's my father. Yes, he's my son. So
2: I can talk to him because he understands. Everything I go through and everything I am. He's my support system. I can't live without him. The best thing since sliced bread is his kiss, his hugs, his lips, his touch. And I just want the whole world to know about my black brother. I love you. And I'll never try to hurt you. We'll for your information, a lot of my brothers got education. Now check it—you got your Wall Street brother, Your blue collar brother, you're down for whatever. Chillin' on the corner, brother, you're talented, brother. And to every one of y'all behind bars, you know that Angie loves ya, my life. No, 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 no. Oh. I want you to know that I'm, I'm here for you, for you. Because you're my black mother. I love you, brother. I'll never Said,